Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Welcome you on behalf of the Contemplative Science Center to today's dialogue with Sharon Salzberg, who's very kindly joined us here in Charlottesville for today and tomorrow, and also Professor Eric Braun from the Department of Religious Studies here. And we really only have one preordained trajectory in this dialogue, which is there's a temporality to it. So we're going to start in the distant past, and we're going to end up in the maybe distant future. So it's kind of a sci-fi element and a personal biographical element. <laughs> so we're really going to just indulge ourselves. Eric and I are both very obsessed with uh, Buddhism and contemplation in the modern world. And so we're going to indulge ourselves in talking with uh, Sharon about those uh, shared preoccupations. And so maybe I'll, I'll start by just asking a, a classic question that I know that you've answered many times before, but just to ground us in the kind of reality of your, your life. What was the first time that you ever practiced meditation, not had an experience you might level label as meditative, but you actually practiced it. And what was the context? Okay. Hi. <laughs> um, it's great to see all of you. <clears throat> I uh, went to India as a junior in college. I was 18 because I'm also a product of the New York City public school system where they like to, in those days at any rate, they like to have people skip grades. So I skipped the third grade and the eighth grade, and my penmanship is horrible as a result. But anyway, um, I uh, had gone to India as part of an independent study program to learn how to meditate. And this was uh, <clears throat> 1970, and I began meditation, to answer your, your exact question, January 7th, 1971, <laughs> in uh, Bodh Gaya, India. My, it was an intensive 10-day retreat. I walked into that compound, never having meditated for one single second before, and the teacher was S.N. Goenka. Uh, so there was a certain uh, almost formula to the trajectory of the days, and um, that's how I started. And so when you, you first did that, like the, the very first day, um, what, was your, what was your kind of initial reaction? Like, what, what the hell is this, or, or this is bliss or this is pain? Uh, it wasn't bliss, but uh, <laughs> um, I had multi-layered uh, reactions. The first instruction I ever got, and I actually thought we might sneak in a short meditation period here together. Um, uh, the first instruction I ever got was sit and feel your breath. Just sit and feel the natural uh, in-breath and out-breath as they occur. And uh, as I often say, my first reaction was a little bit contemptuous, like, what do you mean feel my breath? I came all the way to India. <laughs> you know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to change my whole life? And I'd been going to school in Buffalo, New York. I thought, I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath, you know? <laughs> like, and then I thought, ah, how hard can this be? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is not so easy. You know, instead of, I thought, okay, what will it be like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander? It was like one breath, you know, or two breaths, and I was gone, and I was way gone. So it was definitely not bliss. Um, but in the actual experience of it, there was something that spoke very deeply to me, which has never, ever changed from that moment in time, which was there's truth here. There's something here for you that is, is very profoundly true. And so even though there was so many struggles, um, not only to concentrate, but others as well, you know, that uh, I felt there was a kind of coming home quality that it's just never changed. Sharon, maybe I can follow up on that and ask, was your sense of the truth that it was something you tapped into that was universal or was it the sense of truth about your own personal experience. I know you've talked before about like what preceded that, your childhood and everything, and then, and then you head to India. So, or was it both, perhaps? Um, 
I think it was largely my own personal experience in that I've also observed that my motivation for undertaking something like meditation really changed over the years and is probably still changing all these years later. So in the beginning, you know, I was in tremendous confusion and personal pain and, um, and the resolution or some degree of resolution of that was really my goal. And I could have heard incantations about practicing for all beings or, you know, we practice to develop compassion for uh, the suffering of others. And I would think, you're right, it's okay, but what about me? You know, uh, because, you know, severe pain is like a magnet and it just sucks in all the energy. And I just had to work with that because that was the truth of my experience. And But as I, you know, kind of grew and things changed and, and opened and, and I felt very different, then uh, it was a very different kind of sense of why I would practice and, you know, what that truth, um, that sense, I would say another way to find that, that sense of truth was connecting to something bigger than my immediate circumstance. And it was a while, but it came to be that I could see the relevance of that in life in general, you know, not just for me. Uh, another kind of question is, uh, I wonder, over the years now, it's been a number of decades that you've been working yeah. with various <laughs> kinds of, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> uh, so different kinds of practices, both yourself and teaching to others and seeing how they assimilate them. And I wonder, what, what are your thoughts about the relationship of meditation to aesthetics, to the kind of experience that we have when we encounter a piece of visual art or a compelling poem or a compelling piece of music? Um, it's interesting. Sometimes um, on occasion I've taught with this friend, Mark Epstein, who quotes James Joyce, and it's sort of a quote in that I believe he said some version of this, but it's very hard to source if you're trying to use it for publication where you need, you need precision. But anyway, Mark Epstein says James Joyce said. Um, <laughs> that uh, when you're looking at a piece of art, if you like hold it too close, it's like pornography. And if you stand too far away, it's like criticism. And he said, what you need to do is just stand right in the middle and behold the piece of art. And I've always thought that was a beautiful description of the quality of mindfulness. That when we are too enmeshed in something, it's like trying to own it and there's something, you know, um, there are all kinds of other uh, layers and undertones that come in, into place. This is going to fulfill me. I need this. I can't let this change. And when we stand too far back, it is like criticism. We're, we're disconnected or kind of cold. And, and to stand right in that place in the middle and behold it um, is really the training in, in mindfulness. And so, uh, and I think we just open up. There's... Um, uh, also in the, in the Buddhist teaching where there's a description of certain personality types and many kinds in many different schools, but um, there's one type in the kind of the Burmese descriptions of these personality types, which I am very fully, and that's the deluded type. And I'm just sort of, yeah, nice. <laughs> but someone would have to point out to me, hey, look at that clock. You know, all right, that's nice, a good clock, you know. Uh, I'm just sort of in my own zone, wandering around in delusion. And uh, I am very much like that, or by nature. And it's only been through training and awareness that the world's kind of opened up for me. And I've, I've noticed things. And I always noticed, like, I co-founded this retreat center in Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Society. And if we're ever doing a building project and we want to just get some feedback from people about what we should fix or what we should... Amend. We always ask the people who've been there on a silent retreat because they've noticed everything, <laughs> everything, like every squeak of the floorboard, every sound, every like little crack, and, you know, and it's interesting to think of the contrast of that from how we usually walk around. Maybe I can follow up with that. It's really, that's really an interesting image to me because I feel like there's been a tension between a sense that mindfulness is about the present moment 
versus some who have begun to argue that there needs to be some sense of, of memory, which is, of course, a meaning of the word sati, of mindfulness, mm -hmm. as well. And it sounds like you're kind of placing it in the middle ground where there might be some sense of what's going on in your experience at the same time that you're aware of what's going on now. And I'm wondering if that way you characterize mindfulness, if you see that in basically in line with what everybody else is teaching or if you're trying to shift the conversation somewhat. Um, well, what I, I mean, I feel a few things. One is that I think a lot of the descriptions or definitions of mindfulness, and of course there are many, um, are quite accurate, but are easy to misconstrue. Like to see mindfulness defined as being aware of the experience in the present moment without judging. Or uh, sometimes you hear uh, mindfulness means accepting things the way, the way that they are, the ways that they are, you know? And so I think those are true, but we take them in other ways. Like that can imply an awful lot of passivity. Um, so for example, I was teaching once somewhere and uh, often when we do a sitting, like the one we're going to do somewhere in here in this time together, uh, even before we get to the awareness of the breath, we start by listening to sound. And it's just a way of kind of generally relaxing and opening our awareness. So I'd gotten just that far, you know, let's sit and listen to sound. And somebody raised their hand and said, well, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm going off? Should I sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm is going off or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up. You know, but it sounds that way. You know, you're going to be with your experience without judging. Like, oh, it's a smoke alarm. I'm accepting that, you know. like. But really, mindfulness is a much more dynamic, intelligent, uh, wakeful relationship to what's happening. My, one of my big um, issues about mindfulness, and it's not really an issue. I just think it's, it's not wrong. I think it's incomplete, is that. I find that, uh, at least as far as I know, mindfulness is often presented in our time as a way to really inhabit our lives, which is important. You know, we can live to the end of our lives and never actually feel we've lived. You know, we're not really tasting things. We're not really smelling things. We're not really uh, feeling what we're feeling, you know. And so uh, I think it's a huge benefit to actually inhabit your life. And yet, you know, my understanding of the classical uh, purpose of mindfulness practice is not just to inhabit your life and enjoy your tea more and, you know, really enjoy that cup of coffee a lot more because you're not multitasking. As good as those things are, the purpose is really to understand your life. It's to understand what brings suffering because you see it directly. You know, there's so many things that we're taught will make us happier and, you know, uh, will lift us up. But when you really look at them, it's like, whoa. Like, I think in our time, for example, we're taught often that the more, um, more we can demean others, the better we'll feel about ourselves. And so it's really a culture of, uh, you know, putting others down and, and so on. And, and you actually, if you look at that in your own mind and the residue of what happens, it's not that pleasant. Or some of the things we've been taught are really weakening, like love, loving kindness, compassion, you know, that'll leave you kind of stupid, you know, and just giving in all the time. Is that true? Let's look at that, you know, and so we have the chance through that awareness of looking at all these different things and knowing for ourselves, and so it's a whole other kind of level of understanding. So I wonder, just to keep pursuing the question of aesthetics, um, if you think about Aesthetics is like the opposite of something like anesthesia, which deadens our senses, mm -hmm. and aesthetics mm -hmm. is what enlivens our senses. And that you pointed out the kind of common commonality with mindfulness of being attentive to the sensory detail and kind of enlivening your experience of a world that, that's changing rather than just mm -hmm. reading in a kind mm -hmm. of static way. And also, art is something where I think we're very deeply familiar with the notion of practice in this culture. We talk about practicing scales, about practicing drawing, and so forth. And so I wonder, if you think about that kind of experience we have with the arts and the kind of experience we have in meditative practice, could someone use the arts in the same way with the meditative practice in terms of those kind of transformative possibilities, not just of inhabiting our lives, but beginning to come to terms with our suffering, our identity, the, the nature of our relationships with others? Mm -hmm. 
Or do you think there's some intrinsic difference there that? I don't know that there's an intrinsic difference. I mean, certainly historically, there have been whole schools of contemplative art, you know, and artistry of all different kinds. And I think um, not only do we have the possibility of coming to that kind of understanding, but I think we have the, the legacy that art leaves us that reminds us we can, we can connect to something bigger. You know, that, again, that we don't need to be defined by our immediate circumstance and that there may be universal truths. And we may not have the words for that in beholding something, but that's why art is revolutionary. Um, it's a very radical act, you know, whatever form the art, the artistry is, is taking. I mean, I've done, you know, more and more panels these days on like mindfulness and social action or things like that. And, and I always try to include art as an example of kind of um, getting through boundaries or dissolving some sense of limitation. And just to follow up on that, um, in terms of like these Buddhist practices of, of cultivating deep states of concentration, yeah. sometimes when you read the historical text, it, it feels like they're saying, oh, it doesn't really matter what you use. You know, you could use uh, a colored disc that's, that's, that's yellow and represents earth, or you could use your breath, or you could use a candle, or you could use a statue. Mm -hmm. And yet sometimes when I think about the history of Buddhist meditation and all of its astonishing transformations, that it seems to me you had a bunch of Buddhists saying, it doesn't matter, but somehow it did matter. <laughs> and what they chose to focus on and concentrate on ended up leading in pathways that went in very different directions. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that, the, the interchangeability or, or the, the difference that, that is entailed when you choose a different thing to, to meditate upon as a mm -hmm. way of cultivating concentration. Uh, well, my understanding, we can ask the historian, if... Uh... <laughs> Um, is that, or at least the, you know, the story that's told is that uh, those, amongst those distinct objects of concentration, well, first of all, I should say, at least in the, in the school in which I was trained, um, concentration is just one of the skills that's developed. And so you might be deepening concentration, but it's really a springboard for more open awareness and uh, kind of deep looking at, you know, all a big range of your experience. But when you're focusing on the concentration part of it, usually in classical terms, you did choose one object and keep bringing your attention back to it. But often that object was chosen for you by your teacher. And often it was chosen in a way that was meant to balance some, something else. So if you were very angry or very frightened, they might choose loving kindness for you to help bring your whole system into greater balance and not be so afraid. If you were uh, very greedy, um, clinging, you know, full of attachment, they might choose a contemplation on death for you so that you were, you were cultivating that awareness and that brought a balance so that you could more enjoy the things rather than cling to them of life. And so uh, it was really someone else kind of assessing the situation uh, for you. And in the end, the degree of concentration at least from the point of view of the school in which I was trained, that's all right. You know, you don't have to have um, such an extraordinary, extraordinary degree of concentration. You need some uh, before you can open up the awareness. And, um, and I'd also say that I, as a person in this society, as a teacher who's really trying to see what people are going through in our time and in this culture, I have a, a kind of bias toward objects of concentration that are pretty portable for us. Because what I would like is to have everybody say, you come to a retreat, I'm teaching or a workshop or something like that. I would like everybody to leave with some more confidence and clarity about how to bring these tools into your life. You know, so uh, as I often say, you know, if, if you're working and it's crazy and people are getting angry and you're getting more and more anxious. You can't really open up the closet door and pull out your yellow cloth, for example, you know, and like sit down cross-legged and stare at the cloth and close your eyes, you know, to try to fix that image. But you can breathe. And nobody has to know you're doing it. It's completely private. It's totally uh, portable as a resource. And so 
even if someone's practice is not something like the breath or the body awareness or loving kindness, I'd like to encourage people to at least include some of that so that they have that resource they can they can touch whatever circumstance they're in. Can I ask in relation to that, how often do you or do you ever tell people, no, not mindfulness yet, keep keep with the calming, keep with the concentration? Or is it or is it usually the case that you feel like that calm or stability can come with mindful attention on the breath? Uh, I don't know that I would say, I, I just got confused by the last part of what you said. Well, well, I might tell them, you know, maybe not a broader mindfulness quite yet. Mm -hmm. Stay with the breath for a while or more likely stay with loving kindness for a while. Um, yeah, because sometimes just that kind of open awareness is too... Someone feels that they uh, they feel too scattered, or they're not centered enough, or they're. I mean, it's a big difference between looking at one's thoughts and uh, being ensnared by them. You know, as one of my teachers said, the thoughts are not the problem; it's the glue. You know, so if you find yourself, you know, just these sort of uh, constantly changing streams of thought and emotion, if you find yourself caught again and again and again and again. It's quite exhausting. And so you might well like a, a greater sense of centeredness. So even as those same things happen, you have a different relationship to them. Maybe I could indulge in a slightly technical question, which yeah. is that, you know, when you're doing the calm meditation, you can enter into these deep absorptive states called the jhanas in Pali. And I wonder if you ever encourage those for students or you see those as rather extraneous to what's important. Um, well, again, you know, the school in which I was most highly trained in, in uh, Burmese teaching uh, actually has a pretty clear demarcation between pursuing a path of concentration past a certain point, which you need, you know, as I just described, some, some certain little amount, but some amount, usually more than we have, of concentration. Uh, they make a pretty sharp distinction between that and a path of wisdom or insight. And so uh, from their point of view, and this was a kind of historical moment when uh, my teacher's teacher, Mahasi Saira, um, decided that uh, unlike as was the custom of the time, which was like the turn of the 20th century, that uh, you needed really an extraordinary degree of concentration before you could go on and do a, a kind of broader awareness. You didn't need that much. And that may not sound very revolutionary, but that was actually quite revolutionary because um, if you needed an extraordinary amount of concentration before you could move on to these insight or wisdom practices, that meant you needed a pretty unusual life, you know? It's pretty hard to say work two jobs and get that degree of concentration you know, or be a graduate student and get that degree of concentration in your practice. And so um, it really meant that that kind of prospect of a liberating practice was was held in those days. The, the nuns were gone. It was only monks, you know. And so he came along and he said, no, you know, really you need a much lower degree of concentration before you really investigate your life and look at all those changing circumstances. And so that, like, returned the practice to the people. And that said, you know, you don't have to just practice to be a little calmer. You can have a practice that really upends your whole notion of who you are and helps you see much more clearly how things actually are in life. And so it was a, a sociologically revolutionary act, and that was really my orientation. It's very funny, as I, I sometimes say, where, you know, by the time we met him, Mahasi Saida, he was like... Uh, quite old. He was the patriarch. He was universally acclaimed, you know. And then to hear he'd been like a rebel in his youth, you know. They said it was like realizing your grandmother was a Bolshevik or something like that, you know. I was like, wow, that's really unusual. But apparently it's not unusual. Well, what, I mean, given that you've spent your whole life in this business, let's say, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a little ironic to have you say that because it, it's relevant to the fact that you've become a teacher of many different people. 
But I wonder in terms of yourself, how you understand that. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that was relevant to the choices that you made about the practices that you did and the pathways that you follow? And I also mm -hmm. wonder how mm -hmm. much of that do you feel was, you know, you, you ended up there in India or you ended up in India, Burma, et cetera, with these particular sets of people and might have Sharon back when she was in her 20s ended up with a different set of people and, and gone a different pathway. How much of this was you? How much of it was them? How much of it was the historic moment, do you feel? Or? Right. I think it was, well, it was, I think it was a combination of them and the historic moment because um, there are also ways, you know, one can pursue what they would call the path of concentration through the jhanas and so on. And that's just a particular training. And often they, like, they, they would suggest that or offer that after you've had some amount of experience and in insight meditation, because the underlying truth, whatever you're doing, is that getting attached is going to cause suffering. And that clinging to your experience uh, is never going to work. You know, we can't keep life static and, and, and just hold on. And, um, and so they really like people to have a kind of more fluid, flexible ability to be with a range of things and understand it's not wrong if your experience hurts. It's painful, but that doesn't mean you're going through the wrong thing and it's got to be all bliss and ecstasy. It's just not, it's not a view like that. In fact, I almost answered you differently, David, earlier when, uh, you asked me about how my earliest practice was. And uh, what I almost said was that not right away, like in that first retreat, but pretty soon after, you know, I was 18 years old. I'd had a really traumatic childhood. I'd never really looked at it before. I wasn't, I'd never been in therapy. I'd never done much introspection, but I knew it was very unhappy. And then there I was doing all this meditation and I'm still very close to many of the people I started my meditative life with, and I'm somewhat famous amongst them for once having marched up to Goenka, who is a teacher, and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. I mean, <laughs> clearly it was all his fault, and and he laughed, and, and I'd also, of course, I'd been hugely angry, but I hadn't been in touch with it. And so that was part of what was difficult and challenging is getting in touch with all of those things. But things that are hard aren't necessarily at all wrong. And so uh, before you're encouraged to do practice that will more than likely produce these extraordinary states of consciousness, they want you to have that understanding. But I've always enjoyed, you know, the prospect. I love meditation as an art form and to explore just some of the different things that one's mind is capable of, you know? So I like those practices once I was able to do them, you know, with, with some guidance, but they were always considered um, not the real point in a way. What, what fact, kind of practices do you have in mind? Well, jhanic practice or oh, okay. concentration practices to, they call it jhanic play, you know, it's a form of play. The, the mention of therapy, raises a question I was wondering what you thought of. I know Jack Cornfield has made the argument before that a lot of meditators would do well to be in therapy um, as a kind of compliment, maybe even prior to at some points. And I'm wondering if you see the practice of mindfulness or meditation more generally as something that can directly speak to issues or is in some sense running parallel to personal development or kind of self-awareness and whatnot that might be explored in therapy? Um, I think it can be either. And I think that the question of our personal suffering is very real. And the power of having a sense of inner resource uh, is also very important. So we might meet an external situation or a a memory or, or whatever in many different ways, depending on what we're meeting it with. You know, if you're exhausted, if you're generally overcome, if you, you know, uh, it's going to be much harder. And, and so I don't think it's at all wrong or lazy or um, remedial work to think I need other resource building tools, you know, in order to meet. Like we say it very glibly, like mindfulness means being aware of what's happening without holding on or pushing away, without getting diluted or without 
grasping, aversion, delusion, or whatever. And that's not easy, actually. Um, you know, how much shame do we tend to add to something that's painful, for example, like me and that anger? You know, uh, how much do we call it bad and wrong rather than painful? How much do we judge kind of mercilessly? Um, you know, those exercises in current psychotherapy where you, you uh, imagine you're saying to your friend sitting on the next chair the thing you just said to yourself, and it's very alarming, like, ooh, <laughs> you know? I can't believe I talked to myself that way. You know, it's not that easy to just be with our experience. And so um, tools like psychotherapy for those who feel they need that resource, I mean, it's tremendous to be able to meet that. I'd also say, you know, we practice, this is a very interesting time. It's a very pioneering time uh, for all of you, for all of us who are, you know, things are, structures and styles are really just at the beginning in, in this culture. And, so, um, you know, I think about some of my relationships with my teachers, which were very directive, uh, very different, even in the context of a, a three-month retreat, the way they were instructing me compared to how they were instructing others. And um, very often, you know, uh, very close. And uh, like someone asked me once if I, thought I had reparented myself with this one teacher, this woman named Deepama. And I said, I reparented myself with all of them. You know, and that's very different, I think, when you're getting it from a book or you're sitting with a teacher and there are 8,000 people in the room. Um, you know, so what many people find in that relationship with a therapist where someone is always on your side and there's a, they're also a kind of dispassionate eye on your experience so you don't get so caught up in your own stuff and they're kind, you know, all those things. That's how we were with our teachers. And so what's going to happen now? It's very hard to say. It's very interesting. That's, yeah, it struck me when you were talking about your experience that you're now at the forefront of, of mindfulness and the, and the movement here and your experiences in many ways in Asia sound like they were incredibly rich on a personal level with teachers who were often known for much beyond just mindfulness. Like Deepama was quite known for her supernatural abilities, right? And such things. And so it's been a real shift. And I actually was wondering, this sort of leads me to the question. I don't know that there's an average meditator, but has the concerns you see the spectrum shifted from say, the 70s and 80s to now? Do people need different things? Are there different things they're bringing to the meditation or is it the same old kind of problems that have always been appearing? Um, first, I feel like I should say something about Deepa <laughs> Um It's considered within that um, structure that if you pursue concentration, which is a process of, and maybe, you know, we'll, I'll answer this question and then we'll do a short sitting, okay? Um, you know, what happens in the, in the path of concentration is you choose an object of awareness. You find your mind's all over the place. Your attention's all over the place. You recognize that. You kind of gather that energy back, that attention back to that object. You keep gathering, gathering, gathering. So in the end, so much more of that energy is available to us. And that's why that path is considered the path of power. Not love necessarily or wisdom or graciousness or compassion or anything but power and power can be used in a lot of different ways and um there within that school there's a whole description of using just that energy for what we would call supernatural things i mean they just think they're natural they don't think they're supernatural um because i have a bigger vision of what's possible with life and it said that my teacher Deepama. She came into meditation practice in a state of extreme grief where um, she'd been living with her husband in Burma at the time he was in the civil service. They were Bengali. And um, two of her children died and then her husband died very suddenly. He wasn't feeling that well one day and he died by that night. And she said one daughter, Deepa, her nickname is Deepa Ma, Deepa's mother. Um, and she developed this heart condition and she just went to bed. She couldn't get out of bed. And 
the doctor came and he said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And she got up out of bed and she went to the meditation center and said that she was so weak. The, um, the meditation hall was on what uh, we would call the first floor or you know, the, they would call the first floor up, up on the um, top of the stairs. And she couldn't even get up the stairs. She was so weak. So she crawled to get into the meditation hall. And when she came out of that retreat, somehow she had metabolized all of that grief into compassion. And I was going to say anything about her is that she was known for her love, you know, her loving uh, kindness, really, and her tremendous compassion toward everybody. And it's also said she had these powers. I never saw them um, displayed, but I have no reason personally to disbelieve it. But they were almost like irrelevant, you know, like we don't talk about that. We talk about how kind she was or how amazing she was and her, her warmth and and her love. So it's sort of like, yeah, maybe she could do that. Um, they say she could do that. Uh, it'd be fun to see, I suppose, someday. All those stories, she could bake a potato in her hand and make it taste like chocolate. <laughs> Things like that. That's the famous Deepamah story. Did, did you eat one of those potatoes? Did I? No, I never <laughs> see. That's it. I never witnessed it. Chocolate potatoes. What was your actual question? Well, if this... If the spectrum of, cons I say spectrum just because I know people differ, but if generally the drift of meditators has changed and what they're concerned oh, okay. about yeah. and such. Okay. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a big mystery, you know, like uh, I will say that because the techniques and the methods are so much more available, that's an interesting quandary. Like in my day. One of my friends teased me and she said, you're like those people who say, when I had to go to school, I walked through four feet of snow barefoot. Um, in my day, <laughs> it was not that easy, you know? And uh, I went to India when I was 18. I'd never even been to California before. But I felt such a deep, deep desire to learn an actual how-to. And I just couldn't find it. You know, I looked around Buffalo where I was going to school. I just didn't see it. And so I just got an email from somebody, or no, it was a tweet, actually. It was, it was Somebody just wrote me a tweet and said, um, I live in Buffalo. Can you recommend a teacher from your time here? And I was like, well, no. <laughs> that was the point. <laughs> you know, like, that's why I went to India, you know. And it's curious to us. We talk about it often, actually. Like, what does it mean that something can be so much more available? And you don't have to have such a kind of intense amount of suffering to reach out. Or some people do, of course. But sometimes you're just kind of curious and you want to understand your life better or just the thing better. And What does it mean to have that kind of openness? And, um, we don't know. I mean, I think a lot of what we see is because of the accessibility, you know, that people come from a much wider range of motives now. Let's sit together. I'll guide you through. So I'm going to bring you back to my earliest, earliest days with that technique. See if you can just sit comfortably. Have your back, if you can, be straight without being strained or overarched. You want some energy in your body, but also just be at ease. And you can close your eyes or not. Whatever feels most natural to you, most comfortable to you. If you get, we're only going to sit for about five minutes. So even if in that period of time you get really sleepy, you can just open your eyes and continue on. And at first, they'll say, see if you can just sit and listen to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside allowing your experience to come and go. Of course, we like some sounds and we don't like others. But you don't have to chase after it to hold on or push away. Just let it flow through. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. 
bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from more conceptual level like go fingers to the world of direct sensation, picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath. In this system, it's just the normal, natural breath. Wherever you feel it most strongly, it's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You find that place, bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. If you find your attention wanders, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment is the next moment after you've been gone. It's the moment of letting go and the moment of beginning again. We let go of whatever's distracted us gently. And with some kindness toward ourselves, we turn our attention to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we begin again. That's not a problem, that's actually the practice. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you for that. So I have a retrospective question for you. So there you are in the 1970s in the kind of detritus of the acid dreams of the 60s. And, and in five decades, you have this kind of rich history of the unfolding of mindfulness, yoga, contemplation, and so forth in, in the United States. And I wonder if you kind of think about that in retrospect, those 50 years and the different things that unfolded, 
if you could go back and tinker with it and there was one thing you could change, what would, what would that be? <laughs> um, I, I think of two things, I think. <laughs> um, one is that I think there were things, uh, patterns in this society we didn't recognize quickly enough, and I wish we had just started emphasizing certain things uh, earlier. So, for example, you know, I went to India. I made amazing friendships that are lifelong friendships. Um, we got really close. We had a tremendous community. We were meeting challenging physical circumstance and all kinds of things kind of together. And then we came back, and some of us came back and started teaching, and it didn't occur to me how lonely people could be here and how, or any of us really, that how alienated you might feel if you had certain values about your life and you're working somewhere, you know, five days a week, which did not share those values and, and um, you know, the kind of fragmentation in this society. And so it was like a really long time before we emphasized community as, as a really important thing to be looking at and a really helpful thing. And there were probably any number of things that were a little bit delayed because we had it. We didn't really appreciate how rare and unusual it was. And and then I, you know, I went to I went to Burma in 1985, and that's where I first did intensive loving kindness practice, and came back and started teaching it in 1985. And um, my first book was called Loving Kindness. It came out in 1995, and I wish I'd written it sooner. And uh, and that loving kindness had become uh, just earlier than it actually did, something that is now appealing to researchers to look at and uh, looking at applications of loving kindness kind of well, across the board. Because it goes back to what I was saying about really mindfulness is not that easy, you know? And uh, I did feel I got a lot of pushback when I started teaching loving kindness, you know, it's like a, it's a feel good practice. It's not really a wisdom practice and uh, you'll never see emptiness that way and all kinds of things, you know, so it took about 15 years or something, but now I feel extremely gratified <laughs> you know, that it's so much more prevalent and I kind of wish that it happened earlier. So this will have to be the final question. Yeah, sorry, last question. Thank you so much. I have one logistic question. I was recording your talk because I teach a Buddhist philosophy class here. Would it be okay to use it? Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and my question, my question was about uh, bodhicitta. And um, for example, your teacher is very clearly a bodhisattva to me. And actually in the Tibetan language, as you probably know, we call bodhisattvas heroes of enlightenment. Um, and you said you were not a warrior, but I think you are one, and your weapon is loving-kindness, so I would disagree with that. But so I have a question, like, how should we, or how would you recommend that we deal with this whole question of bodhicitta and um, the practice of bodhicitta, if you could elaborate a little bit on that. You mean in terms of motivation or practice for exactly. the sake of others? Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, we have this whole discussion going on between Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism and uh, bodhicitta and the lack of bodhicitta and what else. And so I'm quite interested in that question. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh -huh. Well, there are, you know, I mean, if one is going to explore Buddhist teaching, there are a lot of historical schisms and, you know, all kinds of things, which um, I felt I did not personally have to be lost in. I have Tibetan teachers and I have had Burmese teachers and um, I, you know, think also I was kind of able to hear things differently at different times. And so in the beginning, the idea of bodhicitta, which is sort of a commitment um, to the welfare and happiness of others, uh, even through one's practice or, or enlightenment. It was kind of abstract for me in the beginning, and I might have said it, but I didn't really mean it. And it was only much later through kind of the evolution of my understanding that it, it came to be uh, 
more genuine understanding or expression of what I cared about. But um, we all have certain kinds of conditioning. Sometimes very, very strong conditioning. And for some people, even just imagining that possibility is incredibly enlivening and opening. And for other people, um, it's uh, like being lectured in a way. You know, it's very intimidating. I have one book, one book I wrote with Bob Thurman. Um, it's called Love Your Enemies. And I begged the publisher, I said, please don't call it that. You know, because my concern was that people would would feel uh, lectured at, you know, like it's not that easy to love your enemies. And what does that mean anyway? And um, before that was the title, just once one iteration before, because we went through like, I don't know, 50 titles for that book. Uh, Bob had seen a movie or something. I think that was it. Bob had seen a movie and there was a church in the movie and the way churches, you know, often have like those neon signs with some statement. So the statement was, love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. And that was going to be the title of the book. And I liked that one, you know, and, and I, was, I was actually in England and, where, you know, there was a British version, a British branch of the publisher and they had designed, you know, covers for Love your enemies, it'll drive them crazy. When I got the news that they were dropping, it will drive them crazy. And I called America. I said, please don't do that. But they did it. Um, but it was like that feeling, like, uh-oh, you know, like one more person telling me how I should be and, you know, what a perfected model would look like. And uh, for some people, it just strikes them that way, and it's not that helpful. So please... Uh Join us in expressing our appreciation for our every two years. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>